Welcome to the KSTE Farm Hour. Here's KSTE's farmer Fred, Fred Hoffman. The water battles in California, they're heating up. Approximately 1,000 protesters made up of farmers and other irrigation interests rallied at the state capitol this past week in opposition to the latest proposal by the State Water Resources Control Board. Their plan? To divert water from farms and cities in order to aid the salmon population. We have that report. Like a zombie rising from the dead, WOTUS, that's the very controversial Waters of the United States rules, have sprung back to life in California and many other states due to a judge's ruling. Virulent Newcastle disease, it's increased its spread on California's chicken population. We'll tell you where and offer tips for its control. All that, crop reports, and a lot more on this week's KSTE Farm Hour. Let's get started. Up to a 1,000 California farmers and water rights holders rallied at the state capitol last week to protest state water officials' proposal to increase water flows in a major California river. It's a move that state and federal politicians called an overreach of power that would mean less water for farms and cities in the Central Valley. The reason for the rally? The powerful State Water Resources Control Board recently unveiled a far-reaching plan to shore up the health of the Sacramento-San Joaquin Delta, the West Coast's largest estuary and a source of water for much of California. The proposal would require 40% of unimpeded flows from February to June on the Tuolumne, Stanislaw, and Merced Rivers. Those are tributaries of the San Joaquin River, which feeds the Sacramento-San Joaquin Delta. The move is an effort to save the Delta's failing ecosystem, especially the salmon run. The state estimates that between 7 and 23 percent less river water would be available for human consumption under the plan. Dry years would mean even less. The impact on agriculture, according to state estimates, will be 2.5% reduction to the basin's annual $2.6 billion crop output. Farm groups say it will be a lot more. Meanwhile, also in that crowd were representatives of San Francisco. The San Francisco Public Utilities Commission gets most of the water it delivers to 2.7 million Bay Area residents from the Tuolumne River. And the Department of the Interior has chimed in. They've issued a blistering attack against the state's proposed water grab, saying it would cripple the Central Valley's economy, farms, and community. The comments came a week after Secretary of the Interior Ryan Zinke visited Don Pedro and New Maloney's reservoirs at the request of Turlock Representative Jeff Denham. At that rally, Gino Pedretti III, he's the Merced County Farm Bureau president, talked about what farmers hope to accomplish by this rally. Uh, we're hoping today that the people, the elected officials understand and the state water board understands how devastating it will be to our area. Uh, our irrigation district, just for Merced, uh, predicts uh, we'll lose water 50% of the time, roughly about 45% of the time we'll have a curtailment, and that will work out to just the eastern part of Merced County to over $150 million a year in economic loss and uh, 500 to 1,000 jobs lost, and that's just for eastern Merced County. Jamie Johansson is the president of the California Farm Bureau Federation. He addressed the crowd regarding the folly of what the State Water Resources Control Board is trying to achieve. We know that just shoving more water down a stream doesn't create more fish. It is simply a waste of water, and we cannot afford to waste water in this state. That wasted water means less food, less jobs, lower property values, and poorer communities throughout the state. But there is another way. There is a way to use water efficiently to protect fish, farms, communities, and our way of life. 
there is a way to use positive, collaborative, and local approaches that we know help the environment and still allow farms and communities to thrive. And Butte County Ranch Manager Les Herringer told the California Farm Bureau Federation that the State Water Resources Control Board is attempting to grab the water from San Joaquin Valley farmers, but they've got more on their mind. Next, they'll be setting their sights on diverting water from the farms of the Sacramento Valley. Butte County is down here because we uh, in Butte County divert water out of the Feather River as well as the Sacramento River and also Butte Creek. And we've been hearing that after the uh, State Water Resources Control Board deals with the folks on uh, the rivers in the San Joaquin Valley, then they're going to come up to Sacramento Valley and deal with us on the Sacramento River and Feather River and Butte Creek. Entire communities have been built on this surface water that we use. Without that surface water, a lot of these communities in the valley would collapse, and we don't want to see that happen. Well, the State Water Resources Control Board held two days of hearings after that rally, and after hearing all the comments, the board formally continued the meeting to November the 7th. Delaying that meeting until November and deferring final action on this complex and critical decision will provide State Water Board members with additional time to weigh and consider the information and the comments. One of the first moves President Donald Trump made back in 2017 was rescinding the Waters of the United States rule, WOTUS, a move that was applauded by farmers throughout the country. Well, that disputed federal rule governing the Waters of the United States, it's come back to life, and it affects California and 25 other states. The rule would expand the federal agency's jurisdiction over both water and land. A judge in South Carolina sided with environmental groups in partially reinstating the rule. Groups led by the American Farm Bureau have asked the court to stay that ruling pending appeal. Michael Clements has more. Action by a federal judge in South Carolina has revived the 2015 Waters of the U.S. rule, making it the law of the land in 26 states. Don Parrish, American Farm Bureau Federation Senior Director of Regulatory Relations, says the ruling is a major setback and AFBF and others are working to defeat it. That court said that the Trump administration could not delay implementation of that rule, and that is a significant setback, and it creates some real problems for agriculture. You've got one judge in South Carolina telling the nation, 26 states, they've got to implement a rule that's already been found to be likely illegal. Farmers and ranchers in those 26 states are now subject to the flawed 2015 WOTUS rule that Parrish says will create uncertainty and have detrimental impacts to their operations. Clearly, it's going to leave farmers out there open to be challenged. It also creates huge conflicting permitting obligations. There's going to be some core districts that have to implement both the existing rule, the 1986 rule, as well as the new 2015 rule, depending upon which state they're operating in. And that's going to be very disruptive. A coalition including AFBF notified the South Carolina Federal District Court that they will appeal the court's ruling that reviewed the 2015 WOTUS rule. We went back and asked this judge because of the disruption and the problems it's going to create to reconsider. We've also gone to court in South Texas to ask that judge to provide a nationwide state. And then we're also asking the administration to put its head down. We know that it's got work to do, but we need them to finalize this repeal as soon as possible. Michael Clements, Washington. U.S. and Mexican negotiators continue finalizing points on a revised North American Free Trade Agreement deal. 
with the potential of a handshake agreement coming soon. We're very hopeful and optimistic on the Mexican agreement. Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue visiting with reporters Thursday in New York State. And while the U.S.-Mexican NAFTA negotiations are top of the news, the Secretary also discussed the potential next step for NAFTA talks between the U.S. and Canada particularly on sticking point issues such as Canadian dairy product classifications and their impacts on U.S. dairy farmers like those in the Empire State. I've had direct conversations with my colleagues in Canada and they acknowledge that the Class 7 issue has been a real problem for us. Canada has not participated in NAFTA talks in recent weeks as trade negotiators for the U.S. and Mexico work out bilateral trade provisions among their respective nations. Abroad Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Here's this week's California crop report. Onions and corn continue to be harvested in San Joaquin County. Rice continues to progress well in the Sacramento Valley. In Tulare County, alfalfa was cut and baled. Corn and sorghum were harvested and cotton and black-eyed beans were irrigated and cultivated. Grape vineyards are being irrigated as well. Table grape harvest is in full swing. Peaches, nectarines, pears, and plums are being harvested. Stone fruit orchards are being sprayed, irrigated, and fertilized. Summer pruning and topping of harvested stone fruit orchards is ongoing. Some old orchards were torn out for replacement with new trees. The Valencia orange harvest is ongoing with light volumes. Citrus groves were skirted, hedgerowed, and irrigated. Pushed-out citrus groves are being prepped for planting. Almonds, walnuts, and pistachio orchard irrigation continues. Orchard floors were prepared for harvest. Early almond, pistachio, and walnut harvest is underway. The brassica harvest continues in Monterey County. Processing tomatoes continue to be harvested in the Sacramento Valley. Cucumbers, peppers, and tomatoes were still being harvested in San Joaquin County. Rangeland and non-irrigated pasture quality deterioration continues. Lower elevation range and non-irrigated pasture was in poor to fair condition. Cattle are being provided supplemental feed to compensate for the declining nutritional value of rangeland forage. Sheep are grazing on fallowed fields. Bees are active in alfalfa and melon fields. Take the KSTE Farm Hour with you wherever you go. It's available at KSTE.com or the iHeartRadio app in streaming mode, or you can download it from your favorite third-party podcast aggregator such as iTunes. Record-setting rainfall in 2017 led to a sharp reduction in Placer County's planted rice acreage that's driving an 11% loss of total crop value. It's all in the 2017 Placer County Agricultural Crop Report. The report pegs the total gross value of last year's agricultural crops and products at a little over $58 million. That's down $7 million, or 11%, from the 2016 total of $65 million. That annual total reflects the gross value of agricultural crops and products, not the net incomes that producers receive. A large-scale conversion of rice land to nut orchards also affected 2017's crop values. This trend is expected to continue until those newly planted almond and walnut trees begin bearing. So for 2017, Placer County's top five crops, cattle and calves at $9.9 million. That's up 15% from 2016. Nursery stock was up 3% at $8.4 million. Rice was down 34% at $8.3 million. Timber was up 30%. Walnuts were down 14%. Increases next year in production of almost every type of meat could set up quite a fight among the meats for the consumer's dollar. Let's go ringside now to Coward Hard Sell. 
This is Coward Hard Sell. I've never fought myself, but I am an expert. It is time to start this bout in this corner, weighing in at 27.7 billion pounds. Beats. In corner number two, weighing 27.8 billion pounds. Pork. And finally, in corner number three, weighing 43.4 billion pounds. Broilers. And now for the blow-by-blow, blow, let's go up to our announcer. How's about it? Here we go. It is on. Now punch is being fired. It's a melee. <laughs> well, it's not going to be that dramatic, not like a fight exactly, but... I think there's going to be competition between meats. Agriculture Department Outlook Board Chairman Seth Myers says beef producers may come out okay in this competition. Beef demand has been really quite solid. It seems to be shrugging off the competition of growth and production of other meats, and prices seem to be holding in there. And in fact, for steers next year, we actually show strength, an increase, adding a couple bucks to 117.75, 100 weight. About a one and a half percent price increase, even with an expected two and a quarter percent hike in beef production. Meanwhile, hog producers this year are expanding production rapidly, with expected pork output up 4.4 percent from 2017, and the foot isn't coming off the gas into 2019. Uh, Seth Meyer forecasting another 4.4% increase in pork output next year. Now, hog prices this year are already expected to drop from last year by almost 12%, and with even more production on tap for next year... That will put downward pressure on prices. Average hog prices next year expected to fall to about $40.75 a hundredweight. And that's a decline of about $3.50 year over year. So hog producers will have seen about a 21% dip in prices over two years. Finally, broiler producers could boost their production by 2% next year. And Seth Meyer says analysts are looking at prices already showing some weakness this year. They've dropped three cents a pound off the expected average price this year. And carried some of that weakness into next year. With prices falling by a little less than half a cent to just under a dollar a pound. Doesn't sound like much till you multiply it by the expected production, 43 and a half billion pounds. So there will be a battle among meats, which could mean some savings next year for consumers. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. One of every five jobs in northeastern California can be linked to agriculture. That according to a new study put out by Cal State Chico. The university's Agricultural Research Institute says farm and ranch production adds more than $4.7 billion in economic activity in that 13-county region. The top crops grown in the northeast region include almonds, walnuts, and rice. Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue says the current trade dispute with China is a little like a drought. You know it's going to rain sometime in the future. You just don't know exactly when that's going to happen, and you have to kind of hunker down in the meantime. Perdue says while farmers hunker down, there are talks going on in Washington this week with Chinese officials, and the focus of those talks? Again, looking at uh, setting a platform where we can persuade China to stop their uh, retaliatory efforts, which we believe are unfair and illegal, against U.S. producers and resolve the trade dispute. The talks will be continuing Thursday, and that's the day the U.S. is set to impose new tariffs on another $16 billion worth of Chinese products. Purdue said the long-term goal here, reciprocal trade, in which U.S. products, including farm products, compete on a level playing field in a fair way. And he said if that can be accomplished, our ranchers and farmers across America would have a great heyday because of their productivity. 
In Washington, Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. A dangerous disease, West Nile virus, has returned to California this summer. Last week, four horses were diagnosed with the disease, two in Sacramento County and one each in Kern and Placer counties. Two of the horses have been euthanized due to the severity of their neurologic signs, and the other two are alive and receiving veterinary care. Horse owners are reminded to have their animals vaccinated to make sure they're maximizing protection against West Nile virus. And once vaccinations occur, horse owners should be checking regularly with their veterinarians to make sure that they stay current. Other mosquito control tips eliminate standing water and work to eliminate mosquito access to horses by stabling during active mosquito feeding times, which is typically dusk to dawn. Also, utilize fly sheets, masks, or permethrin-based mosquito repellents. It's important to remember that mosquitoes become infected with the virus when they feed on infected birds. Horses are a dead-end host. They don't spread the virus to other horses or to humans. Okay, so Christmas, in July, has come and gone. But if you operate a direct farm business, you know, sales and marketing of farm-produced goods by the Internet and social media, consider that you are right now in the middle of the holiday season. Holidays and seasons have kind of blended and morphed into a continuum for the consumer. They talk about already Labor Day bundles for those who are packaging perhaps specialty products. And Ginger Myers of University of Maryland Extension adds that the 24-7 availability of online shopping has also created one big shopping season. From the time leading up to Labor Day, through the fall harvest and those celebrations, as well as Thanksgiving and Christmas. And so... We've got to look at raising customer awareness that we're even there to kind of cut through all the chatters that's out there on the Internet and other advertising sources. That means direct farm businesses need to develop their social media marketing plan, including dates to implement various campaigns to capture as much market share as possible. Myers explains that social media is but one of several tools in the marketing and promotion toolbox. A direct farm operation needs those base listings, paid advertisements, brochures, and website to create brand identity and overall awareness. However, social media can be applied to create greater differentiation from the competition, as well as focus on specific products. Perhaps you're going to offer a special that only your social media folks have access to, or you're going to run a special, buy one, get one, or run a contest. This is a great time of the year for if you're doing some kind of fall decoration or you have a new baby animal on the farm, run a naming contest for that little critter or perhaps an idea for how you're going to paint those straw bales to look like a pumpkin. She adds that planning for social media marketing needs to be done now for the holidays, not the days before the start of the season. So take a Thanksgiving dinner from maturing turkeys to the vegetable side dishes. You do a package and you keep adding pieces to it in front of them. And social media is a real easy way to do this because it's pretty quick. It's forward out there. You have an opportunity to boost posting so you get some more outreach. So it's something you can schedule ahead as well. Work those ads up. You can schedule them through something like Facebook or Instagram that allows you to put them out there certain days of the week. Meyer adds social media marketing can portray a direct farm operation as a problem solver for consumers. For instance, where to buy that local product for that particular celebration and a source of information. If you have a specialty product of fresh berries, talk about the nutritive profile and how to use them. And more than just topping on your ice cream, put them in a smoothie. How can you freeze them? Be the go-to expert for this. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. 
When is a farmer not a farmer? When somebody questions that ballot designation. Central Valley Congressman Jeff Denham and Devin Nunes say they're farmers, and that's how they're going to be described on this fall's California election ballots. But are they farmers? Democrats are saying no, and they're trying to stop them from labeling themselves that way. The party is mounting a legal challenge to California Republicans in the San Joaquin Valley over their using the word farmer. According to the McClatchy News Service, both academic research and anecdotal evidence indicate that a candidate's description on the ballot can affect support, particularly in races where voters know little else about the candidates. As a result, campaigns and political consultants try to figure out the description that will most appeal to local voters. Red to Blue is a Democratic program designed to flip Republican House seats, and it's filed a lawsuit against Denham saying he truly isn't a farmer because he leases his 20 acres of almond orchards in Atwater. The income he earns from the land, valued at a minimum of $500,000, is in rent and not listed as farm income on his 2018 financial disclosure report. Back in May, we first reported on a small outbreak of virulent Newcastle disease in Los Angeles County. Since then, the outbreak has grown in Southern California. There are now 106 cases of the disease that have been detected in backyard birds in California, 80 in San Bernardino County, 11 in Riverside County, 14 in Los Angeles County, and one in Ventura County. In many of these cases, it was exhibition chickens that were affected. Virulent Newcastle disease is a highly contagious and deadly virus in birds. The virus is found in respiratory discharges and feces. The last outbreak of this in the United States was back in 2003. So what are we talking about? What about Newcastle disease? Let's find out. We're talking with University of California certified poultry health inspector, Cherie Sintas Glover. And Cherie, Newcastle disease, it's been a while since it's uh, popped up, right? It is. Um, the last time it came up was in 2003, like you said, and it came at exactly about the same time of year. Uh, and it was pretty devastating for a lot of our 4-H and FFA members because this is summertime, this is when the fairs and the expos get started, and they were, a lot of them were not able to show their live chickens or exhibition birds at the fairs. So explain exactly what Newcastle disease is and, and how it gets spread. So Newcastle disease, when it came up in 2003, like you mentioned, uh, it was devastating to poultry exhibitors, especially those during the summer months. Uh, the 4-H'ers and the FFA'ers were all getting ready to exhibit during, you know, the regular fairs and expos, and they couldn't. Many of the kids that had worked so hard on their projects were not able to show their live uh, poultry at the fairs. Because isolation was needed, so it must be a very contagious virus. It is. Newcastle is extremely uh, easy to spread, and the reason for that is it can be spread in lots of different ways. A lot of people think about their chickens, you know, and if they're healthy and if those are the vectors. But people also need to be concerned because they can spread Newcastle on things like their shoes and their clothes if they're around infected flocks. This is a disease of poultry. It, it's not spread to humans, is it? It's not, but humans can develop eye infections and conjunctivitis hmm. um, if they're exposed to it, like in the right levels. 
So humans can't contract Newcastle disease, but they can experience some eye inflammation. Talk a little bit about the symptoms of, of Newcastle disease. There is a long list of symptoms that birds will show, and the difficult part of trying to figure out if you if your chickens have Newcastle is that they don't always show the same symptoms, and they might always they might not always show the same combination. Um, but some things to look for include sudden death. If you have a flock or a chicken that's suddenly dying for no apparent reason, that could be a sign. Your chickens also might be sneezing. They could be gasping for air. They might have a nasal discharge, and they could exhibit signs like coughing. They could have greenish, watery diarrhea, uh, decreased activity. So if your birds are not feeling well, they're not going to be as active as they normally are. They might also experience tremors, droopy wings, twisting of the neck or the head. They could even have complete deafness. And sometimes they also have swelling around the eyes and the neck. So basically, it's the discharges of the chickens that can spread this virus to other chickens. It is. It's the nasal discharge and it's the feces. And that's what makes it so difficult to control because as a chicken keeper, a lot of times you're out there in the chicken yard, you're walking through feces on a regular basis. And so those shoes that you're wearing can also spread the disease not just about being around the chickens, but it's the equipment, it's the feed, and it's even the clothing and the shoes that you wear in the chicken yard. So I guess it just comes down to basic good sanitary practices for anybody who has exhibition chickens, maybe uh, keeping a a change of clothes uh, out by the barn or whatever, and not uh, wearing the same clothes that you were working with with the chickens and going to another batch of chickens. Exactly. So a lot of people, a lot of backyard chicken keepers will actually have a a pair of coveralls they'll use. And that's only what they use when they go out, you know, with their chickens that are are healthy, that they've been there for a while. They also want to practice good biosecurity when it comes to bringing new chickens into the flock. You want to isolate, you want to quarantine for at least 30 days if possible before you introduce those new chickens doing those kinds of things and even having a foot bath, as simple as it sounds, but a foot bath, a foot bath can actually help um, prevent that tracking of any kind of diseases or, or microbes between different flocks. Explain what you mean by a foot bath. Ah, so a foot bath can be, a, it can be pretty easy to put together. It's um, typically a, a plastic bin of some sort and you can buy a uh, bath mat usually or even a front door mat that fits cut it down the size, you can put it inside the foot bath, use some bleach and water, and you can, uh, what happens is when you go from one chicken yard to another, you can dip your feet into that foot bath. When you have um, some kind of surface inside, it makes it so it doesn't slip, and you can easily clean off your shoes. And it doesn't need a lot of water, maybe maybe an inch or two of water inside, and then just make sure that you change it on a regular basis. So I, I guess to be perfectly clear on this, it'd be a good idea for exhibition chicken owners to have rubber boots for this instance. Uh, it's Yes, um, I think something that's easy to clean. Uh, the good thing about tennis shoes is that you can easily throw them in the washing machine. So chicken owners tend to have you know tennis shoes. But work boots, rubber boots, anything that you can clean easily and that you can use in your foot bath easily is a good idea. Now, I'm not sure of the, the backstory on this original infection that happened in Los Angeles County, but it was among backyard exhibition chickens. I, I got to believe that the possibility is somebody purchased a chicken and, and introduced that new exhibition chicken to their flock before uh, any sort of uh, isolation was imposed. It sounds like that. And there is some rumors going around that it is uh, maybe more game fowl that might have brought 
the Newcastle back into California. Um, you know, we've been pretty good because it's been since 2003 that we've had an outbreak. But coincidentally, it was in the same part of California as it was last time. Um, and having those quarantine, you know, measures, having those biosecurity measures, no matter where you live, or it's a smart idea. Um, but I think especially if there are listeners in the Southern California region, I would be especially um, vigilant uh, when it comes to biosecurity right now. Should chickens be kept in pens? Should they even be allowed uh, to be free range, if you will, and be possibly exposed to uh, migrating fowl? Well, I think there's you're always going to have migrating fowl or birds or you know any any type of um, birds in the environment because they're just naturally there. I don't think there's a way to completely isolate birds from from other types of um, diseases. And there is something to be said for building resistance. So I think that chickens that are um, exposed to uh, different, you know, outdoor areas or environments, they, they do typically build up some kind of endurance or resistance to things. Um, and I think it does ultimately help build a healthier flock uh, because ones that are isolated, that are kept in confined areas, typically um, aren't, as, and aren't as resilient when it comes to these kinds of things. I have read that sunlight is is one great way to help stave off Newcastle disease. Well, that and that is actually one of the crazy things. So as easily spreadable as Newcastle is, sunlight and ultraviolet rays will kill it. And so a great thing that a backyard poultry owner can do is when they are disinfecting their equipment or their brooders or whatever they're using, even if it's their boots that they've been using in their chicken yard, great thing is to disinfect them and let them dry in the sun and have that ultraviolet contact with their shoes and with their equipment. Virulent Newcastle disease has been found among backyard exhibition chickens in Southern California. What can FFAers, 4-Hers, and other exhibitors of chickens do to protect their chickens from this dangerous disease? We're talking with Cherie Sintas-Glover. She's a University of California certified poultry health inspector, and she says even though vaccines are available, your chickens could still get sick. So even, even if birds have had the vaccine for Newcastle disease, they are still susceptible. They can still contract it, and they can still actually die from Newcastle disease. What I find interesting about Newcastle disease is a bird can be very healthy looking for, what, 2 to 15 days and still be transmitting that virus before symptoms are seen. Oh, totally. And well, and it's, it's scary because it can actually go through your flock within a week, um, but it takes about 30 days for your flock to actually you know, get over that disease um, and it, it spreads 100%. You know, once your flock is exposed to that, they're always either going to be a carrier or they're going to die as a result. And that's just another reason why it's so important to be, you know, to be protective of your flock and to follow those good biosecurity rules. And I mentioned that it's a fair season, so you got the county fairs and the state fair, and you've got the exhibition chickens. And I would think, too, that those chicken owners should practice some sort of isolation when they leave the fair and take the birds back home. They do. In fact, it's a common practice. So when it comes to um, exhibition poultry, you'll find that those owners are very protective over their birds, even though they bring them together for, you know, for show and for exhibition um, and for competition. They are very protective. So a normal routine for a, a exhibition uh, poultry owner is to do a quarantine. And they usually quarantine them for at least two weeks after they get back from a show because um, they, they want to make sure that that bird is healthy, that they aren't bringing anything else back home. Um, and you'll find at shows too, um, poultry shows and fairs will hire uh, poultry health inspectors 
And part of that was part, um, as part of that program, they are there to not only um, educate poultry owners, but also help monitor the birds that are there. Because if you have a bird that suddenly shows up with some kind of illness or signs of an illness, you want to make sure that, that, that they're addressed and that they're able to uh, handle that situation effectively. As a poultry health inspector on the fair circuit, I would imagine that most of those birds are pretty good-looking specimens, so it must make it difficult to figure out any symptoms that these birds may have of Newcastle disease. Well, you know, it is. it is. It's one of those things where a poultry health inspector, although they can't diagnose, they're looking for signs and symptoms. So they're looking at the bird to see how they act and how they behave. When they're going through that inspection process, they're um, trying to identify any warning signs. So if they see something like a nasal discharge or they, they hear um, any raspiness, you know, when the bird breathes, they know that that's going to be a red flag. And they have actually a set of instructions to follow. So if any dangers do arise or any warning signs, they know who to call and, you know, what steps to take next. Uh, but that's what's so great about it is that the poultry health inspectors are really there to try and educate and help poultry owners, but also protect, you know, the other exhibitors as well. So when a bird goes home after being at a show and the owner wants to isolate it, what are ideal isolation conditions? A really ideal isolation or quarantine area would mean that, number one, that it is isolated. It's away from the rest of the flock that might be at that poultry owner's home, you know, full time. It also would be in a different um situated in a different area to where the poultry owner can go to that area specifically and not have to walk through their normal chicken yard. Because remember, things like Newcastle can spread through shoes. You want to have a spot that's that's isolated from the other birds and from the path of the other coops because uh, you want to contain that. And you also want to contain um, whatever that bird might you know have been exposed to because you're also watching that bird for signs and symptoms You know that they might have picked up anything from the shows. Um, typically, those birds are pretty healthy, and I don't think um, many of the birds have had uh, issues because, again, the exhibition poultry owners tend to be very vigilant. You know, they tend to be careful about what they bring to a show and what they take home. But in that isolation, you know, it's it's, it's a common practice. They're able to isolate that bird and just watch in case, you know, there is something that develops. So, for instance, with Newcastle disease, you know that the bird's probably going to show signs within a week. So if you have that bird contained for at least two weeks, you're pretty well covered. And in that area, it's kind of almost like a separate coop, um, your quarantine coop. And it will have food, it'll have water, and it will have everything that that bird, that bird needs for the next two weeks. In addition to practicing good biosecurity, what else should bird owners do? Three simple rules. They should be able to look, report, and protect. Look means being able to identify what's normal behavior for a chicken. Um, to be able to notice if they're not feeling well, if they might have contracted something, if they're behaving differently. So if you're able to look and observe, you're able to notice those kinds of symptoms or signs more quickly. The next thing is to report. If you have a bird that's ill or demonstrating any of the signs and symptoms that we talked about earlier, report your bird right away. There's a sick bird help um, line that you can contact or a hotline. You can also utilize some of the uh, CDFA labs we have one in Turlock and one in UC Davis that are closest to us, and they actually specialize in avian science. And they'll actually perform a necropsy on your bird to figure out what's going on. But reporting um, is extremely important because that's what's going to help prevent the continued spread of a disease. Um, and then also protect. Follow those good biosecurity rules. That means, you know, restricting visitors, 
you know, isolate your flock to a certain degree, but, you know, don't have a lot of access if you don't need to, you know, from other chicken owners. Um, you know, avoid those contacts with wild birds or with rodents. Even insects can can uh, be vectors for disease. Make sure the feed is clean. And then also the most basic thing of all is washing your hands. Wash your hands when you go from one chicken yard to the next. If you follow these rules, it'll at least help you um, help, you know, protect your flock from from things that could be very dangerous. And with Newcastle disease having been found in Southern California recently, it might be a good idea for other exhibition bird owners to keep handy. The California Sick Bird Hotline number, which is 866-922-2473. That's 866-922-BIRD. We've been talking with Cherie Sintas-Glover, UC Certified Poultry Health Inspector, proprietor of chickensforeggs.com an urban chicken consultant uh, as part of her work. And Cherie, thanks for all the good information about virulent Newcastle disease. You're very welcome, and I hope everyone is able to keep their flocks safe and happy and healthy. So coming up, some blueberry blather bliss and bloopers on this edition of Agriculture USA. I'm Gary Crawford. I found my thrill. Now, many years before Fats Domino recorded that song, uh, colonists from Europe were landing here in North America, and when they did, they found that our Native Americans were gathering and eating wild blueberries and had been for centuries, even making juice drinks from them, medicines, dyes for clothes. And eventually, settlers here learned pretty well to gather and pick their own blueberries. I know where all the best patches are found, where carpets are blue all over the ground, because I Now, early American farmers did try to cultivate blueberries as a crop with little success. But let's fast forward a bit to when this song was a hit. The year 1910, the place, a farm in New Jersey, the White Farm. The farmer's daughter, Elizabeth White, was bound and determined to make blueberries into a cultivated crop. She went to the U.S. Department of Agriculture for help, and they sent botanist Frederick Coville to the White Farm. And he and Elizabeth White started to work searching for types of blueberry plants that might have characteristics suitable for cultivation. And they searched, and they did crossbreeding of plants year after year after year. Finally, five years later, they harvested the first commercial crop of farm-raised blueberries. And so if you like blueberries... Oh, you can thank uh, the official Blueberry State. I'm from New Jersey and I'm proud about it. Okay, that's enough of that. Now to the present. Here at the USDA's Farmer's Market, Kayla Johnson says that blueberries are the second most popular berry in the U.S. being produced in uh, what states, Kayla? Michigan, Oregon, Washington, Georgia, New Jersey, North Carolina, Florida, Mississippi, Indiana. Now leaving on track three. Uh, And in the last 13 years, our consumption of blueberries here in this country has tripled. Maybe people realized how delicious they are, but they are also very good for you. Blueberries are source of vitamin K, vitamin C, and fiber. They're also a source of antioxidants. 
Uh, no, no, not accidents, but antioxidants. Which research is suggesting are effective for anti-cancer and anti-inflammatory properties. Oh, and, uh, okay, let's know, accident this month, uh, July, is National, National Blueberry, Blueberry Month. <laughs> That's right. So, Kayla, uh, you're here showing folks all about buying and storing and, and using blueberries. First, how to uh, buy the best ones at the store or the farmer's market. Oh, I know how. Uh, the first qualification for blueberries should be that they are blue. I think that that always helps, right? Deep blue. Oh. So if it's the color of the sky blue, then it might be something wrong. So you'll want to look for blueberries that are deep and blue to a purplish color, firm, dry, and a smooth silvery sheen. And you say store them in the fridge and they should keep in there for up to 10 days. So Kayla Johnson and her cohort, Hallie Heinsen, are showing folks out here some recipes and ideas for using blueberries. Here's one for this hot summer, a three-ingredient blueberry ice cream using bananas as the base with blueberries and vanilla bean. You just freeze the bananas, put the bananas and the blueberries in a blender. You'll add your vanilla beans and your fruit and blend until it's creamy. Oh, and that is good. And over uh, here, our other educator, Hallie Heinsen, you're working on something. What is that? It's called um, Aqua Fresh uh, Fresca. Oh. It's just blueberries and water and lime and mint and some honey. That's it. It's just, a, just be a little like kind of smoothie drink. Mm, that's all right. For more great ideas for blueberries, go online to What's Cooking USDA. And now... It's comedy time with Hallie. Go right ahead there. How do you fix a blueberry? I don't know. How do you fix a blueberry? With a blueberry patch? That's a good joke. Uh, yeah, right. Okay, so this is in Agriculture USA. I'm Gary Crawford reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington. Thanks for listening to the KSTE Farm Hour. Heard every Sunday from noon until 1 p.m. Pacific Time and available anytime as a podcast. Download it at kste.com.